Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 213, Jesus H. Christ, part five, What She Knows. And speaking of Jesus H. Christ, there's this story in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus and his disciples. They come to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to Jesus and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Uh, By the way, side note on the story, Jesus refuses to intervene. Isn't that fascinating? Martha doesn't pull her sister aside. She doesn't go quietly to her sister and say, you should be helping me. She instead goes to Jesus and tells Jesus what she wants him to tell her sister. Which, of course, raises the question, why can't she tell her sister? What is going on between the two of them, and why does Jesus not even acknowledge her request? Because the premise of the request was, could you go talk to my sister? He doesn't even register that she's asked him for something, He just points out how stressed and anxious and worried she is and then says, your sister is fine. In fact, she has chosen the better and it will not be taken from her. Now, obviously over the years, this story has been read in many, many, many different ways. And as probably you've come to expect, there's something else going on here. Now, Question number one, what do we know about these women? Well, what's fascinating is in Luke 10, it says that as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So according to the gospel writer Luke, the home is Martha's home. Now, remember, this is first century Mediterranean region. Like a woman's testimony at that time wasn't even considered valid in court. We are roughly 1,900 years before women get the right to vote, and a house is identified as Martha's house. So there's something unusual already about the situation that Luke identifies the house as Martha's house. Now, John chapter 11, we get a little more detail about this family. There's a man named Lazarus who is sick, and it says he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So, Mary and Martha have a brother named Lazarus, and yet it's named in the Gospels as their village, and it's named as Martha's house. That's how it's identified. So, apparently, the three of them live together. There's a man living in the house, and yet it's referred to as Martha's home, and this is in the patriarchal, hierarchical world, male-dominated, of first-century Judaism, and no parents are mentioned. So, there's no parents on the scene, 
And these three apparently are living together, but the house is named as Martha's house, not Lazarus's, which once again, very, very, very unusual. Number three, what do we know about Lazarus? Lazarus gets sick and then he dies. And in the account of his death, we're told that a number, well, in John chapter 11, we're told after he dies that Bethany, the town they live in, was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So in some ways, what the gospel writer John wants you to know is that they were known lots and lots. His death meant something in the larger community, not just beyond the small village, but all the way to the big city of Jerusalem. And then when Jesus shows up, by the way, this is the passage where Jesus, where it says Jesus wept. Jesus shows up, he weeps, he's heartbroken because Lazarus has died. Then Jesus, once more deeply moved, John chapter 11, came to the tomb. This is where Lazarus is buried. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Now, when it says it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, that was a sign of wealth. If you had your own cave with a stone across it for the death of a loved one, that meant you owned a plot of land substantial enough to have a burial cave. Now, what else do we know about Martha? Well, what's interesting is when Jesus shows up um, at the site of everybody's grieving because Lazarus has died, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. <laughs> he shows up and she's like, listen, if you would have been here sooner, this would not have happened. But I know, she says, that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So we know there's a certain force, presence, uh, bluntness, honesty, there's something very real about this woman, Martha, who just has absolutely no problem telling Jesus exactly what she thinks. But also laced in among that is this buoyant hope that he's capable of all sorts of things. Or God, as she understands God, is capable of all sorts of things, apparently including her brother being raised from the dead. Now, what do we know about Mary? Interestingly enough, right after Martha has this interaction with Jesus, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. Now, once again, in uh, whenever you're reading a sacred text, and these, especially these brilliant, clever, subversive, poetic Jewish writers, um, when they mention things, when they throw in little details... It's generally for some reason, which is where all the discussion comes from. It's where the dance, it's like the music to the dance. Uh, in some traditions, they talk about how the uh, scriptures, it's a white page, but with black letters on it. And so there's the black letters, what's been said, and then the white space all around the letters is where you and I dance with it. And we raise questions. Midrash is the ancient word for it. And then we speculate and we make up stories to go alongside of the main story. But what we know is that Jesus shows up and he's looking for Mary. There's something uh, between he and Mary at some level to which he's... And this is chapter 11 of John. So we don't exactly know where it is in the chronology of events regarding the Martha, Martha, you are distracted, that story. But we know that there was something about 
Martha and Mary and Lazarus that drew Jesus to them, and Mary had some unique, what's the word, special connection with Jesus. Oh, one other thing about Mary. John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived. Now it's identified where Lazarus lived because he's the guy who rose from the dead, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. It's like the writer needs to tell you, it's only been a chapter, but let me remind you, Lazarus, you know, the guy who was dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, interesting note, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Then he complains, all this expensive perfume, you could have given this money to the poor. And then Jesus defends Mary and says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Which is fascinating because he's essentially saying what she's done is she's turned this extravagant gift of perfume into like a religious ritual. This is a religious ritual. This is holy, sacred ground here, Judas. Why are you talking about the money right now? Very, very unexpected. By the way, Judas' complaint is that the uh, about 300 denarii would be at someone's annual salary, and that's how much this perfume would have cost. She basically blows an entire year's salary for someone on this religious ritual in pouring it all over Jesus' feet. And apparently, Mary has no problem offending Jesus' disciples. Now, back to the story of Mary and Martha, because apparently, sort of in conventional thinking about the story, Martha's busy with all the preparations. Somehow, culturally, it's all people generally place her in the kitchen cooking while Mary is like sitting in on the Bible study in the living room, right? Those are sort of the cultural images that come to mind. But the phrase that's used is Martha was busy with the preparations while Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. Now, Sitting at the feet of a rabbi was a particular rabbinic expression, and there's a world of meaning and understanding in those few words, sitting at the feet. So, let's work through this for a minute. First, Jesus is an itinerant rabbi. He's on the move from town to town. He tells his students this. It's because he has to heal and preach and announce the kingdom of God all over the region. He uses this loaded word kingdom, which would have been volatile to say the least, because he was doing his work right under the nose of the Herodian kingdom, which ruled the Galilee and Judea, which was then ruled by the kingdom of the Romans. So kingdom was a loaded, volatile, political world word that would have been like electrically charged in the first century. Now, Jesus is also being hunted by Herod Antipas, who is the king who ruled the Galilee region. Luke chapter 13, at that time, it says, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to leave this place and go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. So the most powerful man in the land who has a large army and is known for killing people who defy him wants to kill Jesus. So Jesus has told his disciples, we need to leave this village and go to the next village because I need to teach and preach and announce the kingdom of God. I need to heal more people. I need to announce good news to everybody. But he's also 
in some ways, on the run because the most powerful man in the land wants to kill him. Now, second, a rabbi had a particular way of interpreting the Torah. So different rabbis, different teachers within first century Jewish world had different things they stressed from their tradition. So uh, a rabbi would sometimes say, like, you have heard it said, but I tell you, which is a way of saying, I know you've heard Torah, you've heard the first five books, you've heard the prophets, you've heard the Psalms, you've heard these passages, you've heard it interpreted this way, but I'm telling you, this is how I interpret it. Some rabbis emphasized uh, the poor, others uh, justice, others proper moral conduct, some uh, joy was at the center of everything they did. Now, a rabbi's particular interpretations of the Torah were called that rabbi's yoke. So when you became a student of a rabbi, you would be taking that rabbi's yoke upon you. Essentially, a rabbi's yoke was, here's how to see the world. Here's how to live the fullness of the divine life right here and now. So a rabbi would be telling stories, would be telling parables, there would be jokes, there would be innuendo, there would be hints, there would be callbacks, there would be references to passages that were references to other passages, there would be questions, there would be back and forth, the rabbi would question you and follow you down like a trail of thinking to see where you were at on certain things. So it was this vibrant dynamic when you were in the presence of a great rabbi and a rabbi who had authority, you were sort of being introduced to a whole way of seeing your world. Third, rabbis had disciples, students who learned from them. These rabbis were learning and hearing and discussing and asking questions in order that they could then go and teach and do what the rabbi does. To follow a rabbi was to learn how to do what the rabbi does. And a rabbi would have you as that rabbi student because the rabbi believed that you could at some point do what the rabbi does. So it's really important for this passage to make like a shift from Western thinking about education to Eastern thinking about education. Or think about, uh, think about martial arts. Like if you, unrolled, uh, if you unrolled in a kung fu class and I asked you how it was going, or what do you do in the Kung Fu class? And you said, well, we go and we sit and we watch the Kung Fu master who goes through a whole series of exercises and drills, and then we go home. And if I would say to you, well, and then what'd you do the next week? Well, we went back and we watched uh, the Kung Fu teacher who did all sorts of series of moves, uh, and then we got in our cars and we drove home. I would say, uh, I don't get it. I thought the point was for you to learn Kung Fu. You don't just sit and watch it. You sit and watch it so you can then try it. So think about in any area of education. For many people in the Western world, you go and you learn the information and then you're tested on the information. But in the rabbinical system, and obviously many, many places in, in, in the Western world as well, the goal was not to fill your head with information. The goal was that you could then do what the teacher does. So like in Luke chapter 10, after this, Jesus appointed 72 others, and he sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was to go. So you see, as these stories of Jesus progress, 
he's called these students, and then he begins to send them out in the Gospel of Mark. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. He called these 12 students to him. He began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over evil spirits. So he has authority, then he gives them authority. He gives them instructions, take nothing for the journey except a staff. And then they went out and preached that people should repent, and they drove out demons, and they anointed many sick people with oil, and they healed them. So what you see in the Gospels again and again and again, as he calls these students, they see him doing it. And then gradually he hands it over to them until he's sending them out so that they can do what he does. Fourth, then, when we read that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, this is a term describing the rabbi-student relationship. Disciples sat at their rabbi's feet. When you sat at somebody's feet, it meant you were becoming their disciple. This is not a passage about how Mary just wanted to go to Bible study. No, Mary wants to join a revolution. And remember, joining this revolution means you're joining up with a band of people. From the story, we know that the most powerful man in the land wants to kill Jesus. That's what's in play here. Fifth, as a general rule or practice, in the first century Jewish world of Jesus, women did not sit at the feet of rabbis. This was fairly unheard of because you would only be sitting at the rabbi's feet because the rabbi believed that you could go out and do what the rabbi was doing. And sixth, Jesus apparently is fine with it. Not only is he fine with it, when Martha says to him, get my sister to help me, he says, she has chosen what is better. Now, we'll come back to what the better means, but he apparently is thrilled with it. So the obvious question is, would this have been usual, unusual? Yes. This is not a story about people doing the dishes together, which of course raises the question, is this why Martha says something to Jesus? When she says, get her to help me, is she really saying, please rid her of the notion that she can be a student of yours? Because culturally, according to the dominant social order, that's something men do. So is the story actually about Mary sitting at Jesus' feet is a thoroughly disruptive story that would fracture the social order as it currently was. And that's actually where the tension comes, is Jesus, you, you can't put these sorts of ideas in people's heads. That's not how things are done. And Jesus says they are now, essentially. Yeah, yeah, this is not going to be taken away from Mary. Yeah. So, now let's fly at a higher altitude for a moment, my friends. How much fun is this, by the way? Come on! Okay? Now, couple big ideas. Number one, Jesus H. Christ comes to announce and inaugurate a new social order. It's important that we keep returning to the central truth of who he is and what he's doing here and what he comes to do. He comes to bring about a reordering 
of the fundamental societal structures that keep people oppressed and disempowered. It's about the rearranging of this world here and now. And even when he does talk about heaven, generally when he talks about heaven, he's talking about heaven and earth coming together. Heaven being, if the world was run how God wants it run, you align yourself with that. It's about heaven crashing in to earth. Now, this new social, spiritual, communal order, this new arrangement is centered around eating and healing. That's why you see him over and over again having meals with people and then healing people because these are two dominant ways that he's going about saying, I've come to help you rearrange the whole thing. Like in Matthew chapter 10, he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So essentially in the face or under the nose of oppressive corporate greed, because that's what was happening. The Romans, through the, the Herodians, were essentially coming in to these rural Jewish communities and taking over. Like along the Sea of Galilee, they were essentially hijacking the fishing industry with these large corporate fishing interests. Uh, because empire always has insatiable appetite. Empires have insatiable appetite for revenue, for more land, for more people to tax, for more power, for more conquest, for more influence, for more domination. And these people that Jesus are talking is talking to, they have the boot of an empire on their neck, a particular arrangement of the world that favors the powerful and the wealthy, and those with the most weapons at their disposal. And Jesus never stops inviting these people to a new arrangement where there's generosity and sharing and enough for all. Like in the Gospel of Mark, when there's a man who's uh, possessed by all these demons, and when he asks the demons their name, and they say, we are legion, legion was the name of a group of soldiers, Roman, it was a Roman military term for a group of soldiers. So even in healing somebody who's demon-possessed, the story is about Roman oppression. He comes to free people from their oppression. There's a violent oppression that they are on the receiving end of, and he comes to invite them to nonviolence. He even says, do not resist evil violently, because then you've just kept it all in circulation. Or you think about in, at that time, when a child was born in the Mediterranean basin, in this whole region, uh, fathers had ultimate power over whether a child lived or died. And if a father was looking for males and a female was born, a girl was born, a father could have that child left out to be exposed to die, could have that child sent away, could just refuse to acknowledge the child had been born. Children were nothing Children had no rights. In some ways, they didn't even exist at some level because a father, if he, if he wasn't pleased with the child, could simply have it dismissed from his presence, never to be seen again, maybe even to be uh, left out, to be exposed to the elements to die. So when Jesus says, let the little children, let the children come to me, theirs is the kingdom. This is a radical new way of thinking of what it means to be a human. It was a society 
extremely fine-tuned and striated with layers and layers and layers of hierarchy. Wherever you are depended, it, it essentially depended, determined how many people were above you and could make your life essentially miserable, which is why he keeps eating with people. Because to eat with somebody was essentially an act of political subversion. It was to say, no, I don't buy into the hierarchies of the day. I eat with whoever I want. So when Jesus is having dinner at a tax collector's house, and many tax collectors and sinners are eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him, this is a radically subversive political act. Uh, One of my favorite scholars calls this open and free association, which I just love. Yeah, this is a whole new program for how human beings organize themselves. Everybody, he keeps insisting, is welcome at the feast. And in a culture where not everybody was welcome at the feast, to insist everybody is welcome at the feast was a radical, dangerous, subversive assertion. Now, Jesus comes to inaugurate and announce a new arrangement. What this new arrangement understanding order does is it subverts challenges and confronts the old order. So uh, one man says to Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus essentially says, fantastic, let's go. And the man says, let me first bury my father. Now, when you read it, you're like, oh, that's so sad. His dad died? I guess he probably should go to the funeral. No, let me bury my father. Or burying my, I have to go bury my father was a euphemism. Because in the world at that time, you received the family business, the family trade, and, parentheses, the family money when your father died. So when you went to work in the family trade, uh, essentially what you're doing is you were putting in your hours because someday when your parents passed on, you would inherit all of it, including whatever wealth had accumulated. So uh, when you went to work, the phrase like, let me go bury my father was basically, I'm going to go put in my hours, got to go back to work because if I do this, someday this is going to pay off. So when Jesus, man says, I want to follow you, he says, great, let's do this, let's go. Uh, and the man says, let me bury my father. He's essentially saying, I, I, it's going to take a while. I, I need to go make sure I have enough money saved up, retirement sort of fully secure. I need to make sure that uh, I've played by the family rules about how it works. And uh, Jesus has absolutely no time for this. You don't get it, essentially, he says. We're doing this now. We're not waiting till we're old and about to die. We're not putting this off until it's more safe or comfortable. We're not waiting until we have all of our securities and guarantees in place and there's a lot of money in the bank. We are doing this now. What this call, this kingdom, this new social order does time and time and time again is bring people into direct conflict with their families and closest tribe. And it happens again and again and again with Jesus Christ, is he's moving in this culture in which there are these incredibly rigid categories and protocols and rules for who fits where, who can move up, who can move down, who can accumulate, who has to take orders from who, how it works, and again and again and again, he comes to announce 
a new way of arranging things, and that puts the new way of arranging things into direct conflict with the old order, the old arranging of things, and that puts his call to the kingdom in direct conflict with people's family structures and their closest tribe. And it happens again and again and again. Now, side note, families, tribes, businesses, institutions generally have a center of gravity of consciousness. There's a conventional wisdom. There's generally a map, whether it's spoken or unspoken, for how we navigate the world. There are the rules, the assumptions, the normative practices, the lens through which the world is viewed. Think about education. What's the proper kind of education? What kind of schools? How important is it? How not important is it? The spending of money. Uh, what's okay to spend money on? What's not okay? Acceptable work. What professions are seen as noteworthy and admirable and what are looked down upon? Standard of living. Um, who is associated with and who isn't? Uh, politics, obviously. Um, what we talk about, what we don't talk about, families, tribes, systems, um, how power works, who reports to who, who has to do what the other says, and who gets to make the rules. And what you see again and again is Jesus disrupting that center of gravity, inviting people to transcend it, to keep going, to listen to spirit, and then follow it where it leads. Those who were once closest to you may or may not be interested in walking this path with you. They may get it, they may not. They may find it thrilling, or they may find it the ultimate offense to everything they value. They may cheer you on, they may disown you. You listen and you follow you become aware of new possibilities or new impossibilities, new paths, options. You start to see things in a bigger way. Sometimes it's hard to even put it into words, let alone trying to explain it or defend it. It's like everything goes from black and white to color. You're suddenly taking things apart. You're rethinking assumptions you've had about how this life is to be lived. The assumptions are from so far back. You don't even remember not seeing it that way. And then suddenly you don't see it that way. Not everyone wakes up at the same time. Not everybody wants to wake up. Some people love it exactly as it is. It's safe and it's known and there are certain guarantees and things can be reliable. And then Jesus H. Christ enters in and he insists that a whole new world is possible and it's extremely disruptive. Now, two phrases that are common, but we need to look at them through the lens of Jesus H. Christ, particularly in relation to this passage. First off, the phrase, family is everything. No, it isn't. It isn't. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus talks about, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? I, I brought the division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. He speaks often of how his message and his work and his life have a fundamentally divisive edge to them because he comes to rescue and release people from any system 
that oppresses them or hinders them from becoming everything they're here to be. And in the first century, there were these stifling hierarchies, assumptions, and rules about who can do what, when, and how, and in time and time again, he simply shatters them to pieces. He keeps speaking of a new kind of kingdom where biological relationships are transcended. Now, hopefully, obviously, they're included. Hopefully, everybody comes along. That's the best, isn't it? When everybody comes along for the ride. But even think about the hero's journey, how often it begins with some form of leaving home. So this idea, well, family is everything. No, no, no. And by the time you get to the New Testament, these first followers of Jesus are talking about a new kind of family that's rooted in these deep bonds you have as human beings. Secondly, second phrase, family values. Uh, In Matthew chapter 12, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your brother and brothers are staying outside waiting to speak to you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, caveat, disclaimer, oftentimes there's like a man, he seems like it's pretty harsh. But remember, in the first century world of hierarchy, you as a child were under the rule of your parents. You had no autonomy. The individualism that we sort of think of as like, yeah, that's just part of being a human being now. Yeah, you do what you want. Be yourself. Be who you are. Go be you, (laughs) the best version of yourself, whatever thing you've seen recently on Instagram. These are just sort of uh, assumptive values we have. In the first century, no, you were under the rule of your parents. Your parents held sway, and this held people back. This held people down. These hierarchies were oppressive. And Jesus comes, so family meant something very different in the first century, and Jesus comes to liberate people from any arrangement or social order that inhibits the full flourishing of the human community. Now, my friends, because we're just getting warmed up, let's go back then to Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. This Mary, this is a strong woman who defies cultural conceptions of what women can and can't do. What she knows is that sitting at this Jesus H. Christ rabbi's feet is a decidedly disruptive act with social, family, cultural, and even political implications. She knows exactly what she's doing sitting at his feet, and he loves it. He asks for her. He seeks her out. Her strength and determination and resolve is not a threat. It's a joy. He defends her to her sister. It's almost like he's like, are you kidding me? This is exactly what I came to do. I came to lead people into the fullness of life. Yes, of course, of course. She feels it. She knows it. She knows this is her path. Why would would that ever be taken from her? 
By the way, it's very interesting. This phrase, few things are needed. When he says to, when Jesus says to Martha, um, wait, 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 Martha, you're completely stressed out, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Um, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. It's a very odd phrase, isn't it? Few things are needed or indeed only one. <laughs> what? Uh, or maybe, maybe what he's getting at is this is her path. This is her path. And she has the guts and boldness to walk it. So that's where it's at. Is you, that's it. You, you find your path. You seek first the kingdom. You figure out who you are and what you're here to do. That's the thing. That's the thing. Everything else pales in comparison to that. What is the gift you're here to give? Yeah, figure that out. Why would I ever get in the way of somebody doing that? By the way, side note. We're told that it's Martha's house. No parents seem to be around. She runs it, apparently, because the preparations seem to fall to her unless people are helping her. So, and and Lazarus is around, and he's a man in a patriarchal, hierarchical society, and yet, clearly, Martha, it's her house, it's her village, she's the one who seems to be running the show here. Uh, did the parents die? And we also know there's some money, because Mary has a year's salary worth of perfume laying around, and they have enough land to have a burial plot with a cave in it. If you own a cave, you have some money, some quan, as they say. Okay, so what we can piece together from the story, and this is just classic midrash, we're just dancing with it, we're just speculating, but did the parents die and leave all this wealth to the three kids? And so somebody, because remember once again, going back to the Lord's Prayer, there's a household here. Somebody had to run the household. Did Martha step up to run the household? Did she, uh, in a male-dominated culture, was she the one who clearly was wired? Is she the one who had to step up? Because she's the one who, that's, yeah, that's the kid. That's the kid who can do this job. Um, Did she go through an experience where she had to find the strength to go against cultural assumptions and to become the leader of the household. Uh, That would have been tremendous responsibilities. And is there something about her path? Is she a strong, radical woman? And is Jesus doing something between the lines with her? Like, Martha, you're already a radical. You've already gone against the grain. But your path is not Mary's path. You have your path. You're doing this, and this is beautiful. This is amazing. This takes extraordinary strength and resolve and acumen and intelligence. Uh, but Mary has a different path. Uh, is he essentially saying to her, remember your own story and then extend the grace that it was extended to you, extend that to your sister. And then Jesus says this thing. It's a very interesting thing. Uh, Mary, just lay, lay off of Mary. She's chosen uh, the better thing. Um Because the word better in Greek, uh, some say that the word should probably be translated the good thing, which doesn't sound right. Like, she's chosen the good thing, but then you realize, wait, what do we know about good, right? Good. And remember, principle of first mention, whenever you're reading these Jewish texts, where where does a word or an idea first appear in the Hebrew scriptures and let that inform the way you see it? Well, good, 
comes from the creation poem. Good is about the ongoing creation of the world, the distinction, the creativity, the diversity, the divine announcing it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Mary has chosen the good thing. Yeah, yeah, Mary has stepped into her role in the ongoing creation of the world. And Martha, it's not your role. You already have your role in the ongoing creation of the world. And she has hers. This is not being in the kitchen versus being in the living room. This is not contemplation versus action. This is not sitting at the feet as some sort of passive, just listening thing. No, no, no. She has her own intensities. She's going to be shaped and trained to go and announce an alternate ordering of the world, a new kingdom right under the nose of an actual kingdom that kills people who defy it. Yeah, Mary's going to have her own path to walk. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, you see um, where it takes her, and it's just it's just heartrending. It's gut-wrenching. Now, uh, you can only imagine the strength that would take for Mary to sit there at the rabbi's feet, knowing that her sister is making a commotion in the other room. So you think about the tremendous inner strength. You can only imagine she doesn't help her sister because something within her knows, this is where I'm supposed to be. This right here, learning from this rabbi so that I can go do what this rabbi does. Yeah, in the Gospel of John, Jesus H. Christ talks about I and you and you and me, this inner Christ wisdom, deep in the bones, spirit, soul, essence of every human being, this true self that resides deep within you. And it's like the path is learning to listen to that. It's like learning to check in with your trueness, uh, as you navigate your way in the world, this unbending resolve to be true to yourself, to keep on your path when it defies conventional wisdom. You can only imagine Mary has tremendous reserves in a culture where women just didn't sit at the feet of rabbis to be like, no, this is my path, and I'm going to do it. Uh, and of course, the disciples have all abandoned Jesus by the time He's crucified, and yet she's still there. She's the first witness to the resurrection. So she has some sense, I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be here. This is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, that's, in some ways, that's the whole thing. Uh, that's it, everything. That sense you get when you know this is where I'm supposed to be. That's what everybody's, that's what everybody's trying to find. Um, you don't actually care about making money. I know we all do, but we don't really. Nobody really cares, even when they do, about accomplishments or fame, or whatever. What, what you want is the thing behind the thing behind the thing behind the thing, which is this is where I'm supposed to be. And, the, and the, the brief sort of sketch we get of this woman, Mary, is there's something about this, this rabbi, this Jesus H. Christ, this revolution, this alternate kingdom, this sitting at this rabbi's feet learning so that you can go do it, something within her. Yeah, something within her is like, this is it. And whatever whatever heat she's going to take, okay, fine, fine. A mantra that often helps me when the path is difficult. A mantra that often helps me is simply to say, this is what comes with it. Yeah, this is what comes with it. Try that, by the, try this, by the way. It has a uh, an extraordinary ability to relieve 
the tension and drama of things. The it, of course, is the joy that comes from knowing you're where you're supposed to be. That sense that this is your gift, this is your path, this is what you're here to do, this is who you're here to serve, this is how you're to break yourself open and pour yourself out. Uh, but when you find yourself in those uh, moments when you're being stretched, when you're in the midst of some sort of, it feels like a trial or a test, <laughs> when it's hot, when, when the heat is, uh, feels like it's consuming you, try this. Just say, oh, this is what comes with it. Because oftentimes we get caught up in our own melodrama. Are you with me on this? We're telling everybody how hard it is and, oh, you wouldn't believe the cost of this journey that I'm on, all that sort of over the top. Just try, just go, oh, this is what comes with it. And it has this way, uh, it has this way of just, what did I think? Did I think my path would be totally free from all sweat and difficulty? Did I think everybody would get it? Did I think it would be a calm, cool walk beside a river on a beautiful day? What? Did I think somehow that I would get a free pass unlike everybody else? When you're in it, really in it, when you're even questioning why you stay at whatever it is that you do, try this. Oh, this is what comes with it. Yeah, yeah, just name it. Just, I, just be the witness to it. Instead of letting it overwhelm you, instead of it raise all these questions, am I even doing, what am I, how did it, just, yeah. You want to be in the game. You want to be right there in the center of your path then you'll be disrupting something somehow, and this is what comes with it. Yeah, it's a tremendous mantra for relieving all the drama. Oh, let's do a tangent of sorts. Difficulty, trial, all the sweat that comes from walking your path, it's probably best not to make that drama public. Yeah, you probably don't need to post about it. You work that stuff on your own. And you keep repeating, this is what comes with it. You know that that you know what I'm talking about, right? You know that that impulse to post about all the challenges and difficulties, and then everybody else can comment and cheer you on. If you need help, just ask a friend. Um, just ask a friend. Oftentimes, people become addicted to their own drama. It's like we have to keep reminding people of this brave, courageous thing that we're doing. If you're using the word brave or courageous, it probably isn't, just for the record. <laughs> Let other people use those sorts of words. Just stick on your path. That's the beautiful thing about Mary, is you don't get any apology or defense from Mary. The storyteller completely leaves out Mary going, Martha, this is important. You don't get it. We don't get anything from Mary. What we just get is this resolve, this calm. Mary, the teacher is asking for you this act of pouring the perfume, um, we get somebody who's doing something unbelievably radical and countercultural and dangerous. She's, she's going to essentially risk her life. And yet I love the way the story is told because we're not given any of her like, you know, it's tough to be a hero, but some of us women just have, she's just, she just does it. She's just there sitting at the feet. These little details we get. It's like the storyteller knows exactly how to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah, this is what comes with it. This is what comes with it. Yeah. And Jesus says to Martha, she's chosen what is good. Yeah. So in some ways, that's, that's, those are the questions. What is in you? Uh, what, what's your one good? Is there any path, any next right step, any question that just keeps coming up? any move, any new opportunity, anything that needs to be started, created, launched, any battle that needs to be entered, 
and it haunts you. It calls to you. It whispers to you. It keeps nudging you. It just keeps coming up. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's how spirit works. Spirit just sort of quietly never stops, like speaking to you about who you are and what you're here to do. But then perhaps you also have those tribal, cultural, familial voices, voices from the marketplace, voices from the neighborhood. They're in your head. They're all around you in flesh and blood. They're telling you what you can and can't do. They're telling you what's possible and what's impossible. They're insisting that you don't have the goods. You aren't cut out for that. Other people do that. That's not appropriate. That line of work isn't something that we raised you to go into. Uh, Telling you that you've lost your mind. They're questioning your beliefs. They're wondering if you've wandered off the path. They're wondering what's wrong. Um, This is why Jesus H. Christ is so dangerous. For literally thousands of years, he just keeps speaking, keeps inviting you to your path, inviting you to a participation in a whole new ordering of things a whole new kingdom, not about greed and the standard violence and oppression, but about a table where everybody's welcome, a non-violent love for the enemy. Yeah, and he keeps insisting that you can, you can walk it. Mary's sitting at his feet, and Jesus is thrilled by it. Oh, yes, this is awesome. Let's do this. Let's go. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. And what Mary knows is there's nowhere she'd rather be than right here. And if the entire dominant patriarchal first century Jewish hierarchical world around me says women don't sit at the feet of rabbis, Mary, what she knows is, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Of course they do. Of course they do. And may you, my brothers and sisters, may you be true to what you know, regardless of the cost. And may grace and peace be with you every step of the way.